Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments for silent prayer, so you can make sure you're in fellowship, and make sure that uh, you're ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to come together this evening. We are um, we rejoice with the Cooper family in the promotion of Rex as uh, to his heavenly home and his heavenly reward. And Father, we are so uh, thankful for his lifelong ministry and uh, his great uh, uh, great provision of of his family, his sons and daughters, and their impact as believers in the world. And Father, we uh, continue to lift them up. Pray for them that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and by doctrine during this time. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, that as we look at this doctrine of suffering, that you might give us some fresh insights into what your word teaches, into some of the adversity that we face in our own life, that we might come to understand it better, though we know from your word that we cannot comprehend the reasons, the rationales, and the purposes because we just don't have and are not capable of assimilating all of the facts and information. We simply need to trust you. And, Father, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking in this study. In Christ's name, amen. As I indicated in the prayer, the topic, the doctrine we're going to look at this evening and probably next week as well comes out of the next couple of verses, actually the last verse we've already looked at in Romans 8.17, as well as 8.18, introducing the concept of suffering. Now, for some people, suffering is has to do with something that is extreme. But the word for suffering merely means in both Greek and Hebrew that you, something has happened to a person. And over the course of the development of the language, uh, these words for suffering in both Greek and Hebrew came to be associated with something that was not positive. And that can operate on a, on a scale of intensity. We have things that happen every day that are not what we wish to happen. They're not extreme, but they are not what we would like to happen. They provide difficulties and challenges for us. And that is suffering in one form. I often think that, that some of the more extreme things that we think of as suffering are just so large and overwhelming that they're easier to handle than the constant little nitpicking of the, of the adversities of the world because we just get tired of the battle. And as my friend Jim Myers often says, we have to learn to love the battle. 
and it's often wearisome. We live in the devil's world, and that's one reason that we encounter suffering and adversity. And suffering is is simply uh, dealing with the fact that we're fallen creatures, living with fallen creatures in the midst of a fallen world. And it's not necessarily overt or extreme uh, uh, persecution or oppression or uh, the hostilities of going through a hurricane or a tornado or going through a major economic collapse. Suffering uh, can involve a lot of minor areas as well. It's just the difficulties of life. And most of us have been around long enough to know that sometimes our walk with the Lord on a day-to-day basis gets wiped out more by the little tiny things than the major things. And so we have to, when you hear the word suffering, don't think in terms of of something that is horrible and extreme and large. It includes a whole spectrum of things. And a lot of times the way in which we respond to something and the way in which we perceive a, a negative event is dependent upon the mental attitude that we're in at the time. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you've been going through a series of negative events, then you can hit the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, and it's not very large, but it just seems to absolutely wipe you out. On another day, when you're fresh and you're well-fed and you're energetic, it, it may not be such a big deal, and a larger negative uh, may not even uh, phase you too much, and you're able to focus on the Lord. And the Lord designs these as tests for us for a number of reasons, and this is what I want to get into as we begin this study. So I want to look at the uh, suffering in terms of what the Bible teaches about the reasons for suffering, the whys and wherefores of suffering. Romans 8.17 says that if we're children... And we all are, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to this passage in Romans 8, that at that instant of salvation we're adopted into God's royal family and we become heirs of God. And we are heirs of God. And then if we pursue spiritual growth, then we are we become joint heirs of Christ conditioned on suffering with him. Now, that is not a suffering that is related to what he endured on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ faced a lot of different suffering, opposition, antagonism, uh, frustration. Can you imagine being the absolute perfect son of God uh, that, that um, in the Old Testament, as God is present in the in the tabernacle of the temple, sin or anything unclean cannot even come into his presence. And yet now we have the uh, incarnate second person of the Trinity living, growing up in the midst of a fallen family, in the midst of a fallen culture, a fallen world, and and with uncleanness and sin uh, in his faith day in and day out. That would present a measure of adversity. And as he entered into his ministry, constantly facing the opposition from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, uh, the religious leaders, as well as others who had their own agenda, uh, that too was another form of suffering. So there were a lot of different ways in which we can suffer when we stand for the truth of God's word and take our stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, that's not talking about heaven. That's talking about, as I pointed out, the reception of rewards when we are at the judgment seat of Christ because we have taken on the challenge to be a disciple. A disciple is not a, the term disciple is not a word that is a synonym for a believer. There were many disciples who did not believe. Uh, Judas Iscariot was one example of a disciple who did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. A disciple is simply a term for someone who is a student, uh, someone who is dedicated to following the teachings of their uh, master, or their instructor, or rabbi. And so uh, a disciple is a, really a term for a believer who has taken on the challenge to pursue spiritual growth to some level. So as Paul introduces this topic of suffering in verse 17, he then goes on to explain it and put it into perspective in verse 18 by saying, I consider, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, whether this is great or small, whether this adversity is on the magnitude on a scale of 1 to 10, 15 or 20, or whether this is just barely makes a, uh, a blip on the screen, uh, whatever the suffering is, n- they're not worthy, no matter how extreme it might be, it's not worthy once we compare it with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When we understand the purpose, when we can focus on the why to the degree that we can comprehend it, understanding that God is using it for a purpose, that even though we can never comprehend that purpose, and that's the, we'll be, spend some time in Job tonight, that then that was God's message to Job, that no matter how horrible things were, God said, I'm not going to answer your questions because even if I answered them, you couldn't understand it. So uh, the issue is you have to trust me. So Paul says here the perspective is that, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared uh, with the glory uh, which shall be revealed in us. So I want to start by looking at some categories of suffering that we learn from the Scripture. I've never approached it from this perspective. Uh, we're going to look at about five or six uh, categories this evening uh, in terms of understanding uh, the category, the kinds of suffering, why God allows suffering in our lives. And the first category is preventative suffering. God allows suffering in our lives to prevent us from giving in to carnality, going further in our arrogance, uh, giving in to our sin nature. And under this category, there are several ways in which uh, preventative suffering occurs in our lives. The first is that suffering is preventative in that it warns and instructs us. God sent suffering to Job. Job, as you know, lost his ch- children. He lost his possessions, he lost his wealth, and he did not curse God. And then there was a second round of losses uh, where he lost his health. And again, he did not curse God, but due to the influence of his friends, uh, it exposed his, his the, the questioning that we all have in times of adversity. But God did not send suffering to Job because Job had done something wrong. Again and again at the beginning of Job, 
God says to Satan, he says, have you considered my servant Job, who is a righteous and blameless man? This is stated several times. Job had done nothing wrong, so why did God allow this suffering in his life? And one thing you need to remember as we go through this is that God's the original multitasker. So we may encounter suffering that is has several different facets to it and several different reasons for it. It's not just one or the other. God is doing several things at the same time. So the first is that suffering is used to warn us and to instruct us. Now, this could fit under another way in which often suffering is is uh, evaluated or analyzed is that there's deserved suffering and undeserved suffering. Deserved suffering is when we can attach the suffering to some specific decision, course of action in our life, and the reason we're going through this adversity is because we have made certain bad decisions in our life and we're just uh, reaping the consequences of it, either in terms of the direct consequences or because God is uh, exacerbating those consequences as, as divine discipline. And then there's also undeserved, sometimes called unjust suffering, suffering that is not attached at all to anything in our life. We may be doing everything right like Job was, but yet we go through uh, some form of adversity or suffering. And usually because our one reason is that God often uses that suffering to expose areas of, of independence and autonomy and sin in our lives that we're not facing or dealing with. So in the process of spiritual growth, we have to understand the depths of our own depravity. Uh, remember, as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and wicked. Who can know it? So it's, it, we've camouflaged our own sin nature so much that sometimes God has to bring adversity or suffering into our life to expose that, uh, that arrogance that is still present in, in our lives so that we can deal with it. So it's designed to warn and instruct, and in Job 33, 16, uh, this is in one of Elihu's speeches to Job, he says, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. So God uses suffering to get people's attention, to get us to learn something about him. The second form of preventative suffering is to get us to turn from sin. What is sin? Now, I'm not, I didn't say sins. I said sin. There's a difference. Sins in the plural usually talks about specific individual uh, acts of disobedience, different kinds of sin, whether we're talking about overt sins such as uh, uh, murder or illegality or uh, physical uh, actions of violence or dissension, uh, or whether we're talking about sins of the tongue like slander and gossip, uh, maligning people, or whether you're talking about mental attitude sins, uh, the purpose for suffering is to expose the actions of the sin nature so we turn from it. We say, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so Job 33:17a uh, speaks to this in order to turn man from his deed. 
So that's a reason for preventative suffering so we don't continue on the wrong road, as we're talking about in our Proverbs study on Sunday morning. A third reason for preventative suffering is to prevent pride and sin associated with arrogance from developing in our lives from as it continues to grow and expand. Job 33.17b goes on to say, in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. In other words, to the idea there of concealing pride from man is to remove it from the life. A fourth reason is to uh, protect us from death. The end result of sin, we've studied so much in Romans and other passages, the end result is death, not eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, but living a death-like existence apart from the power of God so that we're not living and experiencing the blessing and the happiness and the joy and the peace that God has from us. And so Job 33.30 says that another reason for suffering is to bring back his soul from the pit. This is Sheol, which is often, which is a metaphor used here for, for death or a death-like existence, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. So preventative suffering is to get our attention before we've gone down the path of sin to prevent us from taking the wrong course. So that's uh, the first reason for suffering. A second reason for suffering or second category of suffering is corrective or disciplinary suffering, punitive suffering. This is what we often think of as God punishing us for taking certain courses of action or doing certain things. Um, the word that is used in the Old Testament most frequently for this is the Hebrew word yakah, which is one we run into in, in, in Proverbs. It's used in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which is a verse that, uh, that we're all very familiar with when we'll be studying soon on Sunday morning. And that's a word that's used in uh, Job 33, 19, and it means to correct someone by punishment. It refers to a, a penal disciplinary action. So this is for the believer who doesn't pay attention to the preventative suffering and keeps going forward in terms of his own willfulness in disobedience uh, to God. Uh, it's used in these passages in a passive form, especially in Job 33:19, to show that it is God who is the ultimate source of the chastening. But in other passages like uh, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, it, the, the, the genitive uh, construct there used afterwards informs us of the source of the chastening. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Don't react with anger to God. Don't blame God because you're going through suffering or adversity. God in his sovereignty oversees everything. He's not directly causing it, but he allows through his permissive will certain things to come into our life. He sovereignly oversees these things because he allows them to come into our life for these various purposes. Uh, we were always reminded, and a promise you should memorize is 1 Corinthians 10.13, that there is no testing taken you, but such as is common demand. But God is faithful who will, with the testing, 
make a, a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. Psalm 6.1 uses this same word again, where David prays, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. And remember the word anger doesn't mean God's throwing a temper tantrum or he's becoming emotionally uh, upset. It is a metaphor to understand the, uh, the intensity and the negative aspect of God's judgment for disobedience. So uh, David is saying, don't rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. So the word rebuke and chasten are parallel to one another, and it has to, it emphasizes that corrective nature that comes with, um, that comes with suffering. Uh, so God used suffering in Job's case not to discipline him for wrong behavior, but it was part of uh, corrective, I mean, our, our preventative uh, type of suffering. Uh, it exposed certain ideas that were wrong in Job's thinking. He had developed a false idea of his own righteousness, which comes out in some of the passages, and uh, some false ideas about the value of his service to God. And this is what uh, Elihu is contending in um, in these passages, he says, uh, turn, turn for a minute to, uh, well, I won't look, I'll just mention a couple of passages. We won't turn anywhere just yet. Um, Elihu contends that Job had said, according to some translations in uh, Job 34, I am righteous before God. But others, uh, various scholars believe that this should be translated that Job said, I am more righteous than God, indicating a certain self-righteousness and arrogance that he had. And he's defending his innocence uh, with such vigor that he has overstated his own righteousness. And so this is part of the purpose for suffering is that it exposes these um, uh, aspects of arrogance within our own sin nature that we have camouflaged and covered up. So Elihu quotes Job as saying, what advantage will it be to you and what profit will I have more than if I had sinned? In other words, Job was contending with his friend saying, you know, what value would this be if I had sinned? Uh, and he goes on to say in passages like Job 34, 9, it profits a man nothing when he is pleased. See, he's, Job is expressing his dissatisfaction with God. So what the suffering does is it begins to expose areas in our soul where human viewpoint begins to leak out and, and reveal areas uh, and to expose areas of arrogance uh, in our soul. So this, this then is being pointed out by Elihu uh, to Job to get him to wake up. Now, a third category of suffering is a pedagogical or educational suffering. It's designed to teach something. It's designed to give us instruction so that we learn something from it. We're not just going through suffering. When you go through difficult times, you should say, now, what does the Lord want me to learn here? How am I supposed to respond to these circumstances and to this uh, situation? Uh, there are many different ways in which uh, this, is, uh, this is accomplished. 
Uh, we'll look at the passage a little bit later on, but in First Corinthians, I mean Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, the apostle Paul talks about the fact that God had given him a thorn in the flesh, and then it is further defined as a messenger from Satan. And that word messenger is the Greek word angelos, which means messenger, but it is the word for angel. And so it's an angel from Satan. That thorn in the flesh wasn't uh, health problems. It didn't have to do with his weak eyesight. It didn't have to do with any of those other things, but that there was a, a demon assigned to Paul. And later on, it talks about how he's overcome all of this opposition and persecution and and everything, and it's clear that that is how this thorn in the flesh manifested itself is apparently in the context of spiritual uh, spiritual warfare, there, were, there was demonic activity stirring up opposition to the Apostle Paul, that here is the, probably the most brilliant man on the face of the earth. He had one of the greatest rabbinical educations known to man uh, during his lifetime, and was uh, uh, plus he has all of the revelatory uh, knowledge that God had given him, and yet he's he's rejected time and time and time again. He is opposed by people who don't understand, uh, don't want to understand anything about what he is saying, and he is constantly going through rejection and hostility and persecution, and yet and so God has allowed this in order to keep him. Humble. So that's one reason that we have pedagogical uh, suffering is to teach us something about humility. In doing that, it teaches us to develop patience in two categories. The word patience in English is often used to translate two different Greek words. One is the word hupomenes, which means to stay under something, hupomene, to stay under something, to endure uh, a testing situation, negative circumstances. And then the other word is the word makrothemia. Makra meaning long and themia meaning anger. So it's a restraint of anger, not losing your temper, not losing your patience. And so the two go together. To endure something involves uh, patient endurance and, and uh, long suffering. And so the Lord is teaching us these things. And then third, in doing that, it teaches us humility to recognize the authority of God to oversee all of the events in our life and that our life is not about what we want. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about your agenda, and it's not about my agenda. It's about God's agenda. And when we forget that, God has to instruct us and teach us and correct us and he will do that through his word. He'll do that through preventative suffering. If we don't get the message, it will be through punitive suffering. But all of that is also part of educational suffering. In Job, we read passages such as Job thirty-six twenty-two: Behold, God is exalted by his power. When we come to understand the omnipotence of God to sustain us, in the midst of suffering, that is how God is exalted. We, when we say, oh, God can't really help me, what we're saying is we're saying the Scripture lies, God's not omnipotent, I'm in a situation God never thought about before. God's omnipotence isn't able to take care of me. I, I don't need, I can't, I've got to do it on my own. That's essentially what we're saying. So God is exalted by his power 
we have to let his power be manifest. And then Job, uh, uh, the, then the question is asked, who teaches like him? He teaches through suffering and adversity. Job thirty four thirty two, we have the cry to God, teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Uh, you know, we're calling upon God to expose what the real issues are in the midst of suffering so we can be successful in the test and not have to go through it again. Another passage in the Psalms that also talks about this pedagogical aspect is in Psalm 25, uh, verses 8 through 14. Hold your place in, in if you're in Job. Let's look at this psalm in Psalm 25 and just sort of think our way through this psalm so we can understand what the, uh, what the message is and how we can apply some of these principles and, and promises um, in our own lives. This is a search situation. It's a psalm of David, and it's in the context of forgiveness for sin. And in that sense, it is also what is called a lament psalm, uh, that's the technical scholarly term they use for these, but it's it's a psalm that is a cry to God in the midst of suffering, crying out to God that, look, I'm going through all of this this adversity and suffering in life, calling upon God uh, to uh, sustain us. So David begins by saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So the psalm begins focusing on God. Now, sometimes in a lament psalm, the focus isn't on God. He just goes right to the problem. And that happens with us a lot of times when we are um, in the midst of suffering. We're so focused on who we are. We're self-absorbed, and we're, we're so focused on our own problem that that's where we start with prayer. And some people think, oh, that's just wrong. I, I've got to wait till I get back and get in fellowship or get everything straightened out. But that's not what David does, and you shouldn't. You don't need to feel the need to do that too. We can confess our sins, but we have to start with, Lord, I'm really upset here. There's honesty there. I'm upset. I don't understand what's going on. This is happening. My life is cratering around me. What's going on? That's the cry to God. But then we don't stop with that. We don't stop and have a pity party. We continue to press through to focus on who God is and what his plan is, and it is that focus that then changes the perspective. Now, in this psalm, David begins with a statement of trust in God. See, not all situations and all responses are the same. Not all people are the same. One day we're going to respond one way, and another day we're going to respond another way. And in this situation, David begins by focusing on the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Now, the the underlying statement here is, Lord, I'm trusting you, but this looks pretty bad and I'm afraid that, that you're not going to pull me out of it, and if you don't, then I'm going to be embarrassed in front of everybody. So, see, he starts with trust, but then he's moving back to a statement of confidence in God, but he, he wants to lay the issue out. Let me not be ashamed. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. The other thing that's going on here is he's, he's Im- embedded in this is a rationale to God that, Lord, if you don't pull my fat out of the fire... We're going to all be embarrassed about your plan. And he's preventing this rationale that if you let these horrible things continue, 
then it will give aid and comfort to the enemy. So that's part of his rationale as to why God should intervene in his life. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Now, this phrase, waiting on the Lord, is a synonym for trust. Because in trusting in the Lord, we have to relax and not impose our timetable on God's plan. Uh, Those who wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. That's the same idea in Isaiah. So we need to uh, wait on the Lord. Let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Now, that waiting may take days, weeks, months, years, but, but that's part of the test is to wait on the Lord. Let those be ashamed, in other, and, and then there's the contrast in the second part of verse 3, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. In other words, the evildoer, the bad guy. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. So ultimately there's this, this statement that's reflective of humility that, Lord, I'm in the midst of this adversity, this opposition, but I know that this is a teachable moment. It is a time for me to learn and apply some doctrine, so help me understand the lesson and to put it into practice. And then he focuses on where the solution is in verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day long. So he has affirmed his trust in God in verse 2. He's affirmed the fact that he is waiting on the Lord uh, that's implied in the first part of verse 3. Uh, it is restated in at the end of verse 5, On you I wait all the day. Then in verse 6, he calls to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. Now, what's he doing here? He's focusing back on the character of God. But he's doing it not only to remind himself of God's attributes, but he's reminding God of his attributes that because God is a God of mercy and he is a God of loving kindness. These are terms that are often linked together in Scripture. Uh, Racham is the Hebrew. It has to do with with mercy. It's an idiom that comes out of uh, uh, the the, the bowels, that he is a God of tender mercies and compassion and your loving kindness is your faithful, loyal love. For they are from of old. Lord, this is who you are. Again, he's building and embedding a rationale in his prayer for why God should answer his prayer positively. And then there is the confession, verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. Uh, Sins refers to the violations of God's standards, hatha, and transgressions is pasa, which means to, to transgress or violate a stated commandment. According to your mercy, remember, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. So he appeals to the character of God. And then we come to verse 8, and he says, focusing again on the righteousness and the goodness of God, he says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. So God is instructing us, we're all sinners, as Paul says in the New Testament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble, he guides in justice. But what does he do with the arrogant? Other passages, God 
uh, takes a stand against the arrogant. He opposes the arrogant. For the one who is humble, he guides injustice. Now, you can have, and I think David, the passages that talk about David being a man after God's own heart indicate that his basic orientation in his thinking was to be obedient to God. But many times he failed. And that's true for many of us. Our, our ultimate desire is to obey God. But there are other people who, yeah, I, I'll go to church and it's just a show. It's just superficial. But their heart's desire isn't to truly obey God. Now, just because your heart's desire is to truly be obedient to God and learn and grow doesn't mean it's any easier and doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult and it doesn't mean there aren't going to be uh, difficult challenges. But that's that's the the, the, the basic orientation the life uh, court, life's course that that David chose, but we all know David uh, fell off the wagon many, many times. Sometimes he really crashed and burned, and that can be true for any believer. But God still said he was a man after His heart. So we can be focused on God. You can have a believer who is tremendously focused on God, mature, growing, and his life orientation is on Bible doctrine, but that doesn't mean he's, he's not going to crash and burn a few times. We all will and we all do. So God teaches sinners in the way the humble he guides in justice, and part of the guidance is through suffering. Suffering is compatible. God's allowance of suffering is combat, uh, compatible with his righteousness. He guides in justice. Uh, this is the same word for righteousness in the Hebrew. Uh, tzedek is the noun form. And he says, the humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. So he guides through teaching, and that instruction comes through suffering. Uh, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. This is like Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. So many people hear all things are good. That's not what it says. It says God is working all things together for good. In God's sovereignty, he has an end game, and even uh, in, in his omnipotence and omniscience, he's able to weave together all of the evil, disobedience, horrible things, so that when we get to the end of the plan of God in time, God is going to work all these things together for absolute absolute good. So all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and testimonies. And then he comes to the end of this, this period. They began in verse uh, verse 7 about confession. He says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Now, we don't know which particular sin this was. There's no historical annotation here to indicate a particular uh, time of carnality, but it was obviously a, a significant sin. Verse 12, we read, Who is the man that fears the Lord? What does Solomon say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So David is ask, asking, who is the man that fears the Lord, that is truly oriented to the grace of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in pros, uh, prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. 
That is, the descendants of the one who, who fears the Lord. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now, what this passage focuses on is that God is constantly involved in teaching us about himself, teaching us how to depend upon him, and teaching us how to grow. Psalm 94.12 echoes this same idea, stating that blessed is the man or happy is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. So God's instruction ultimately comes out of his word. The only way that you and I can have a framework for understanding uh, suffering in the very limited, finite way that we do is when we are have a framework that comes from God's word and understand what he has uh, revealed to us. We see something about this in Job chapter 37. So turn with me back from Psalms, back a few pages to Psalm 37. Now in Psalm up through chapter 37, we see this interchange between Job and his three friends, and then we see a fourth individual come in, Elihu, and Elihu seems to be saying something different from the three friends who are saying, Joe, basically get a grip. You screwed up. It's your fault. Uh, God punished you because you're guilty. Where all along God had said uh, Job was uh, blameless and upright in all of his ways. Now Elihu comes along, and he addresses it from a different perspective. And uh, there's a lot of debate as to whether Elihu is just as wrong as the other three friends or whether Elihu is uh, is more correct in pointing out the sort of playing off the three friends, focusing on the justice of God, and these are some issues that I haven't had the time to really get get into. They're quite complicated, but that's beside uh, beside the point. Something I'll have to deal with when we get around to uh, to Job. But we see in chapter 37 that that Elihu is still uh, focusing on uh, uh, challenging Job's. Uh, sort of resentment toward God and causing him to think a little bit more about uh, suffering. In the first verse, uh, he talks about the, um, the the storm or the suffering that's coming coming ahead under the metaphor of a storm. He says that this also my my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. So he's He's describing the approach of uh, God and the approach of, of, uh, of suffering in terms of a storm. This extends down through verse 5. Uh, and then in verse 6, he talks about God's control over even the harshness of the winter weather uh, in, in a winter storm. This is in, covered in 6 through 13. And then starting in verse uh, 14, Elihu begins to ask Job a series of uh, rhetorical questions. Uh, this is poetry. There are a lot of rhetorical, starting in chapter 38, God's going to start asking Job a lot of rhetorical questions. He doesn't expect an answer. The questions are asked in order to get Job to think about uh, how he would or could even answer those questions. And so starting in verse 14 through 18, we have these these various questions that uh, Elihu is asking. Uh, Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? 
Uh, do you know how the clouds are balanced, those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? See, Elihu's beginning to point out to Job that Job's knowledge is pretty finite. This is a perfect setup for when God begins to answer Job, uh, starting in verse, verse 38. So uh, Elihu asks those rhetorical questions, and then uh, starting in verse 19, he focuses on uh, what the real, what Job's attitude should be in terms of uh, responding to ins- the instruction of the Lord. Teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. In other words, he's looking at God in terms of this being in this impenetrable darkness that we can't really understand what God understands because our knowledge is so finite and limited, but God's is, is so, uh, comprehensive, we can't even begin to approach that understanding. Verse 20, should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. God is so overwhelming. Even now, men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the sky. As you look at the sun, you're going to go blind. When the wind has passed and cleared them, he comes from the north, his golden splendor with God is, with God is awesome majesty. I think this is a this is a point where the the whole trajectory of Job builds to this point in in Elihu's speech, and then God comes on the scene. So he's he's setting the stage for God to come on and and address Job. He says he comes from the north, his golden splendor with God, his awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power. In judgment and abundant justice, he does not oppress. Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. And that really ends the first part of of the whole book of Job. And then, verse 1 of chapter 38, the Lord comes and appears to Job and begins to ask him a series of questions through the next uh, several chapters. So we have this focus on, in, in 37, 19 through 24, on the transcendence of God, on his justice, and on his omnipotence. God instructs us. We learn from him, so we have to submit to his authority. We see this in passages like Psalm 119, uh, verses uh, 66, 67, and uh, 71. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Uh, Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He's been instructed in the midst of affliction. Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So one purpose of suffering is that we learn God's statutes. As part of this suffering, God is helping us to understand more of who he is. It's not revelational in the sense of God giving uh, verbal information to us, but the suffering enables us to comprehend as we apply and implement God's word. It gives us that ability to gain greater insight into uh, an understanding of the realities of the text. Uh, Moses refers to this in terms of the adversity that the Israelites went through in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, God humbled you, allowed you to hunger, 
and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In other words, God let you get really hungry so he could feed you, so he could teach you to rely upon his sustenance. Uh, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Psalm 119.50 adds to to that. Uh, David says, This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. Uh, Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Uh, these are the uh, Psalm 119:71 is another one. It's good for me that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes again and again. This is reiterated. Psalm 77, one through three. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and He gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. Some of you have had nights like that. Some of you have had many nights like that where you just couldn't sleep because you were going through such adversity that once you got uh, closed your eyes and tried to go to sleep at night, all you could think about was whatever the troubles were. David had the same kind of experience. So what does he do? He turns to the Lord, which is where he would receive comfort, but he was not receiving comfort because he wasn't responding to it. Uh, Psalm 77.3, I remembered God and was troubled I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Until he focused on doctrine, there's no real solution. Another way in which uh, this educational aspect of suffering comes through is is, uh, seen at the time of Lazarus' death. Now, Lazarus died in the early part of John chapter 11. You all remember the story. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are up in the northern part of uh, Galilee, where they are ministering around the Sea of Galilee, and some messengers come from Mary and Martha saying, Lord, your friend Lazarus is sick unto death. Come and heal him. And notice, uh, I always think it's interesting because earlier in John, there's a centurion who uh, has a son that is sick, and he sends a messenger and says, you don't have to come. I know you're busy. Just, Just heal him from where you are. But here are Mary and Martha, and they don't say, hey, Lord, you're up in Galilee. It doesn't matter. Uh, You can heal Lazarus from there. They're saying, Lord, come and heal him. And the Lord, who uh, could immediately heal him from there or could uh, immediately leave and get there before Lazarus died, says, no, I'm not going to go. He continues about his business for another uh, four or five days, and then he decides to head south to to uh, take care of the situation with Lazarus. So that by the time he arrived, Lazarus was already dead and in the grave uh, for four days. And the family and friends and mourners are all around. And Martha comes out, and she's quite distraught. And this is the context of these verses. Jesus said to them plainly, now he's talking to his disciples as they are on their way down to uh, Bethany, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Why? That you may believe. Now, may believe what? They were already believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They're already born again regenerate, but they have to learn to trust God. their, Their belief in terms of the faith rest drill, in terms of their increasing confidence of God, needs to be developed. And so this is going to be an opportunity where, uh, Laz- where, where Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, and it is going to 
give more empirical evidence of his messiahship and of his power, and that if he has power to raise people from the dead, then whatever problem it is that you're facing, God has the ability to solve that problem. So he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go to him. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9 is a core issue of um, of um, uh, Paul's teaching in, in uh, relation to affliction and uh, suffering, in relation to uh, financial suffering, in the uh, dealing with um, uh, giving. And he's talking about the Macedonians and how they gave out of their poverty to help the believers in, in Jerusalem as he was collecting uh, along the way to take money to help those who were suffering during a famine down in, in, uh, in Israel. He said, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deep trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their generosity, would be a better way to put that, not liberality, that has different connotations today, but in the wealth of, see, out of their poverty they gave because of their understanding of the grace of God. And so uh, their suffering was used to teach others about the grace of God. Verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. And that relates to the fact that as eternal second person of the Trinity, he had all things, and then he entered into human history as a child living in a lower middle-class, working-class family and grew up without a whole lot as a human being so that he, he could go to the cross and through his death on the cross, we might be made rich. Fourth category of suffering is to glorify God. John chapter 9, verse 3, when Jesus is uh, dealing with the blind man, he says, neither this, they, they're saying, well, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? This man was born blind. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him so that God could be glorified through the healing that was about to take place. John eleven four, 4, uh, right after Jesus heard about Lazarus being sick unto death, uh, Jesus heard it, and he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So adversity and suffering may have nothing to do with you, but except the opportunity to bring glory to God. This is the backdrop of what Paul says about his thorn of the flesh. In Second Corinthians twelve seven. he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, his knowledge is so great, he's saying, to make sure I don't cave in to arrogance, a thorn of the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, a demon, an angel of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He goes on to say in verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, there was nothing wrong with Paul praying to God to remove the suffering. He didn't know what the answer was until he asked. There's nothing wrong with asking just because God's answer ends up being no. Uh, so we are, it's legitimate to pray and request anything, but recognize God may say no. There's a reason to this suffering. 
And the reason for Paul's suffering was so that he could learn that God's grace was sufficient for him, that God's power, his omnipotence, his strength was made perfect in weakness. So Paul concluded, therefore, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, I recognize that by my limited power going through this, God is glorified as I depend upon him. David in the Psalms, in Psalm 50, 15, says, call upon, God says to David, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's a great promise we can all claim. Call upon me, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And then the fifth reason that I have for why suffering occurs is to remove distractions in our life so that we learn to focus on what's really important and what has uh, eternal value. It teaches us to organize our life and to get rid of the stuff that is irrelevant for, for why God has us here, that is a distraction from our ambassadorship, and to put our focus on the fact that we're not here for our personal pleasure and enjoyment. We're here to represent uh, the, the heavenly court and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, 9, and 10, Paul says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He's talking about the fact that he has been under persecution and had been sentenced to death, and so their life was uh, on the verge of execution, but it was that way so that they would trust in God, not in themselves. And in verse 10, he is the one who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Suffering also teaches us to organize our lives so we spend more time in prayer. Psalm 77, 2, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. See, that often is our experience. We go through adversity, and it is so overwhelming that we claim promises and we pray, but it, we're so unsettled that that continues all through the night. Now, some people say, well, you're, you're just not really claiming your promise if you didn't go right to sleep. Well, that's the silliest thing in the world because that comes from somebody who has a silly, superficial attitude about suffering. Think about the fact that the night before Jesus goes to the cross, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is sweating blood. He is under so much emotional turmoil. Do you think he could have gone to sleep? Peter and John went to sleep. They're supposed to be guarding him. But Jesus couldn't go to sleep. He is under extreme emotional distress. That's the language that's used in the Greek. He is overwhelmed, but he's turning to God and he's praying. Now, he would have, if, if, the, if, if he, they hadn't come out to arrest him, he would have been up all night sweating blood and praying. Just because you're praying and claiming promises doesn't mean instantly your mental attitude gets straightened out. It doesn't mean instantly that which is bothering you and overwhelming you, it goes away. It might, but there are times we go through things when we are just feel so overwhelmed that it takes time for us to let the Word of God have its impact in our life and to settle things out. And that's what, what David is talking about here. It's in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. He's doing all the right things. 
My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I just, it just didn't happen because the soul is so, just so overwhelmed by the circumstances. James gives us a couple of prescriptions in James 5.13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's the solution. And if you have recovered and you're cheerful, let him sing psalms. Now, I'm, going to, I'm not going to embarrass anybody here. And I should ask, how many psalms could you sing if you were cheerful? If you were happy, could you sing through a whole hymn by memory? Shame on you. Better get to work. Because the Bible says if you're happy, sing hymns. So you have to learn them. Gee, what a concept. Not just memorizing Scripture, but learning hymns. Can't exactly apply that scripture if you don't know any. Okay, suffering removes distractions. First Peter one six one thirteen. Peter, the Petrine epistles are great epistles for understanding suffering. He says, "In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by trial." So on the one hand, you can have great joy, but on the other hand, you're going through hell on earth. He says, uh, "Therefore, verse thirteen." Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Straighten out your thinking. It's thinking, thinking, thinking. God doesn't care how you feel. I don't care how you feel. The issue is, are you girding up your thinking? If you gird up your thinking, if you start thinking right, your emotions will come in line. It may not happen overnight. It may take time. But the issue isn't how you feel. We all recognize we have all kinds of screwed up emotions. The issue is, how are we thinking according to the Word of God? Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. That means to have objective thinking. The only way you can have it is from the Word of God. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that closes out those five categories of suffering. And next time I want to come back and address, there'll be a lot of overlap, some similarity, but address it from a more personal, subjective perspective of 10 reasons why we all suffer. Why do I suffer? When we say, God, why am I suffering? I'm going to give you 10 reasons why we suffer. And only one of them has to do with your own bad decisions. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon uh, this, this incredibly huge topic of suffering. We all go through suffering. One thing we have in common is that we all go through adversity. We go through disappointments. We have heartache. We have things that go wrong in our lives that are not what, the way we would wish them. We have people who oppose us. We have circumstances that uh, continuously irritate us. But, Father, we can face them all and handle them all and have great joy because we trust in your word. It takes time to grow to maturity so that we have that stability that comes from your word. But in the process, we have to learn the lessons of your word to think in terms of what you teach about suffering and adversity and all of the difficult and hard things that we've seen and done. There is a purpose for them, and that part of that purpose is simply to learn to trust you even in the midst of those horrors. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to apply these things, that God the Holy Spirit would really make clear the application to each of us in our uh, separate lives and different uh, circumstances. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.